Okay, Judges chapter 4 this evening. I'd like to look at Judges 4 and 5 together as they sort of uh, encompass uh, <clears throat> some events that, that tie together, so we may have to move a little more quickly through this section here. But uh, we're in this section of the book of Judges now where we're beginning to become introduced amidst this cycle in Israel's history where they would turn away from the Lord and enter into a time then of slavery and bondage and then God would raise up uh, these deliverers, these judges, not in the sense of judicially, but typically they were military leaders that God would use to then liberate them from their enemies that were oppressing them. And for a time they would do well and experience rest, and yet then often they would enter back in. And as we saw last time in chapter 3, one of the real predominant judges in the third chapter was a man named Ehud. And we're told that uh, because of the deliverance of Ehud and the influence, it seems, that he had among the people of Israel, we're told there at the end of chapter 30 that the land of Israel actually had rest and peace for about 80 years under the leadership of of this man Ehud. Now as we come to chapter 4 verse 1, it picks up by telling us when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. So once again we see this pattern, this cycle that existed among them in this time where there was no king in the land and everyone continued to do that which was right in his own eyes. There was sort of a, a vacuum of leadership in a lot of ways during this time historically in Israel. It was a time of great moral darkness really of spiritual deficiency among the people and there was just this pattern and once again as Ehud now passes off the scene in one way we see that his godly leadership and his influence among the people certainly had a strong uh, uh, effect upon the people in that for the time of his existence it seems that they were serving the Lord they were being faithful to the Lord and that's in one sense a, a good uh, Compliment, I think, to Ehud that, that godly leadership breeds commitment, strong leadership breeds commitment, and the effect of his presence and his life and his leadership was helping the people to stay on track. And yet now, in another way, we see the other side. It's somewhat sad and unfortunate that when his presence was no longer there as a man, that the people quickly turned back to their evil ways and they turned away from the Lord, which kind of shows you on the other side of that, the sadness of how sometimes it's a real tragedy that people will serve the Lord when this person is serving the Lord or will serve the Lord under the leadership of maybe this particular individual if that mentor is present in their life or that leader is having an influence or an impact in their life but yet on their own they're not willing to stand on their own two feet spiritually or walk with Jesus faithfully. And if the absence of that leader or mentor or person maybe that they look up to in some way spiritually is not there with them, that they turn away from the Lord in that time in their life. And that's kind of a, a sad testament. We don't ever want to fall into that pattern where we'll serve the Lord if this person who's a part of our life, that the spiritual influence is there, but if they're no longer there, then somehow we don't have the incentive on our own or the motivation, or we're not genuinely committed to the Lord ourselves. that now we're not going to follow the Lord and we're going to quickly turn back to a sinful lifestyle, maybe to old patterns once again. And this this was sort of the tragedy and really what happened among the time uh, historically after Ehud died once again, and that's the sad word there in the testimony shows you the pattern, the children of Israel again 
once again turn back to evil in the sight of the Lord. And again, the pattern, verse 2, So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor, and the commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Hashereth Hagoim. Now, what you see happen here, because they again return back to doing evil in the sight of the Lord, what basically happens, verse 2 describes for us, is they lost ground that they once had conquered. It tells us that this man, Jabin, who was a king of a territory in Canaan. Now, some say that the name, the term there, Jabin, isn't actually a name. It's a, it's a reference like Pharaoh. Uh, I don't know if that's really critical to understand that. But this king of Canaan at this time, who it says reigned over the territory of Hazor, now oppresses them. And we're going to see in the next verse that he literally was harshly oppressing them now for the next 20 years. And what happens is they fall prey to a, a territory and a leader that at one time, interesting enough, under Joshua's conquest, Joshua chapter 11, you might want to write in your notes if you don't remember, Israel has already conquered the territory of Hazor in the land of Canaan. So basically what we have being described here is because they turned back to their evil ways, because they backslid spiritually, entered back into wrong patterns once again, what they did was they lost ground spiritually. They lost ground where they had conquered territory, where they had made advancements, where they had prior victory and they began to move forward. Now they're regressing backwards. And whenever we turn back to sin in any way in our lives, this is one of the tragic consequences is we begin to lose ground in our lives. Maybe an area where we conquered some habit or something that at one time we didn't have under control, we start to lose ground. And ground that we had conquered, we start to give that up and we start to forfeit back over to enemy control again. And now here they find themselves enslaved uh, to a people who are now, it seems, regaining strength. And, and this king of Canaan here in the area of Hazor begins to conquer and rule over them. And his commander, we'll see his military commander, Sisera, who will be the dominant person in this chapter was the one who carried out his uh, exploits as a military general. Verse 3, here's the pattern. Once they fall into slavery, the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. For Jabin had, notice the Bible describes, 900 chariots of iron. And remember, chariots were like the, the equivalent to a tank in that day. If you had chariots, and not only chariots, but chariots of iron, it indicates he's got quite a strong military arsenal. And it says that he, for 20 years, had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Now, again, to be harshly oppressed, to be enslaved, to be dominated and oppressed, not just oppressed, but harshly oppressed for 20 days is too long in my opinion, let alone 20 months or 20 years. I mean, you're talking 20 years of misery, 20 years of being harshly oppressed, being cruelly mistreated, being dominated and ruled over where you have no right or freedom, you're being mistreated and enslaved. And you notice how the pattern is progressing. Last time it, we saw in chapter 3, it happened 8 years, then 18 years. Now for 20 years, it took them 20 years until they eventually were broken enough and humbled enough 
to repent and to cry out for the Lord's deliverance in their lives. Such a, a sad thing to think about losing 20 years of your life. 20 years. 20 years of a nation struggling and, and falling apart at the seams when it could have been excelling and prospering and doing well had they been serving the Lord and honoring God in His ways. 20 years of maybe someone just having a life that is just miserable and under the bondage and the oppression of the enemy because they're not serving the Lord and yet never coming to a place of humility or brokenness. So sad. But finally, after 20 years, that's what it took to break them. They cry out to the Lord and God is going to begin to now bring deliverance to them. Now, verse 4 records for us what was happening in this time period a unique thing was taking place and i think it's just another indication sadly to the moral and spiritual deficiency that existed among the land in that time that god was working in unique ways because here the only record we have in the book of judges of this incredibly godly and spiritual woman who the Bible shines a very beautiful light upon to remind us again that God is not partial to who he will use. Uh, God uses men, God uses women, certainly in unique and in different ways with their roles and their gifts and their callings. But it tells us here in chapter 4, verse 4, Now Deborah, who was a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, and that's all we know of her background. Nothing else is told us. It says she was judging Israel at that time. And she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. So all of a sudden now we find out that there was this woman, Deborah, and we're told a few things about her. First of all, we're told in verse four that this woman had a spiritual gifting from the Lord. It says that she was a prophetess, that is, she had the spiritual gift of prophecy that was an operation through her life as a calling or an office that it seems she exercised on a regular basis. Now, this is not the only time we have in the Bible a female who had a prophetic gift, a prophetess rather than a prophet in the male sense. Miriam, if you remember, we saw uh, Moses' sister was referred to as a prophetess, someone who exercised that gift. We have a, a woman named Huldah that we'll see later on was a prophetess. In the New Testament, we have a reference to an elderly woman who hung out in the temple precincts during the time of Jesus' birth and early days, whose name was Anna, who was a prophetess, a woman who was of great age, but yet she spoke prophetically during the times of the birth of Christ. And then even in the book of Acts, we read of Philip having four virgin daughters, it says, who prophesied. So we see that this gift of prophecy, it's not gender uh, exclusive. It can exercise itself through both men and women. And a prophetess or a prophet is basically someone who hears a word from the Lord, receives a revelation from God, and then speaks forth that word for God. Someone who basically serves as, as a voice piece for God, almost as a sort of like the instrument of a telephone. Again, the telephone itself, the, the device doesn't speak forth the, the words of the message. It conveys the words of the person who's speaking through it so the other person can hear. And this is really what the gifting or the operation of the gift of prophecy does. It's a person who basically God uses 
as his microphone, like this microphone, to speak forth what he wants so that someone else can hear it. So he speaks that word into the heart and mind of a person who then conveys that message on God's behalf. And this gift was operating, it says, through Deborah's life. She was speaking forth the word of God to people, as well as it says, verse 4, that she was judging Israel at that time. Now, in this sense, we can tell the word judging from verse 5's description as well is a reference to the fact that she was basically serving in like a governmental role. Uh, She was serving as sort of a civil capacity, providing governmental rulership or leadership in this time. She was a godly woman who heard from the Lord. Obviously, she was a deeply spiritual woman. In fact, it says in verse 5 that she actually had a location that apparently was pretty well known in that time. It says there was the tree of Deborah, So this sort of seems to be the location where she typically would go and position herself. And it says the people, as she would sit there under that palm tree, the people of the land of children of Israel, they came up to that location to Deborah, this prophetess who was judging the people for judgment in matters. The idea is when situations would arise, civil matters, or maybe somebody needed counsel or guidance, she was someone who was in tune with the Lord. She understood the word of God. She was someone who had a a ability to provide governmental leadership in a civil capacity and she would judge matters and give civil uh, advice in regards to situations or social matters that would arise. So people would come to her for counsel and for wisdom. And apparently she was a very uh, fruitful woman to help people in the things of God and let them hear moral and spiritual ways of how to handle matters. And verse 6 tells us that during this time, she sent and called for Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali. So she now sends for this man, Barak, uh, who basically the location describing there is about 100 miles away from where she's at. So uh, she sends for this man, Barak, and it seems that she now has a prophecy or a prophetic word from God for this man of what God is calling him to do and what he was to respond to as a call from the Lord in obedience. And he comes from quite a distant journey, probably would have taken a few days to get there. And when he arrives, verse 6 and 7, it seems to be now she delivers this prophetic word to him, this word that God gave her to deliver to this man, Barak, and this is what the word of the Lord was to him. She says, has not, verse 6, the Lord God of Israel commanded, go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor, take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali and of the sons of Zebulun. And against you, God says, I will deploy Sisera. So God's saying, I'm going to draw Sisera into conflict with you as you station yourself in this location the commander of Jabin's army with his chariots and with his multitude at the river Kisham and God promises notice verse 7 I will deliver him into your hand so this woman Deborah calls Barak and she says this is the word of the Lord for you God's given me a message to convey to you God is calling you to rise up as the next 
judge, the next military uh, general in Israel to provide deliverance for his people. Again, verse 3 said that God's people had cried out to the Lord. So they had cried out to the Lord and God put this word into Deborah's heart that she was to encourage Barak. Listen, you are the one that God has selected. You're the one. And I think in some ways, my own personal conviction here, uh, I couldn't guarantee that this is 100% accurate. I think more than likely, because I see how God often works on both ends, I think God was already speaking to Barak's heart and that this is just a confirming word prophetically coming from Deborah saying, listen, God has called you to rise up and to be the man to bring deliverance to his people. Just like God would raise up Moses and God raised up Ehud and God raised up Othniel, we saw so far in the last chapter. And she says to him, God is calling you to do this. And I think this was the Lord using a, a very prominent woman who was well-respected, who was known to be a prophetess in the land, to basically give this prophetic word just to confirm likely what God was already speaking to this man's heart privately a hundred miles away, and maybe he was still sorting through, or maybe, my personal conviction, he was kind of just being a little sluggish to respond to the Lord. And, and he was sitting back on his laurel and went, is this really God? I don't know. Is this, is this the Lord? I'm not sure if he's, I mean, and, and maybe for whatever reasons now, he gets a prophetic word from the Lord from Deborah to help encourage him. Because look how it says there, verse 6, has not the Lord God commanded? Now, that almost sounds like it's in the past tense. Has not God already commanded you to do this? You know what God's already commanded you to do. God has called you. He's been speaking to you. Why aren't you responding? Go deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Gather 10,000 men, he's told, and position them on Mount Tabor to be there. And I will draw Sisera, the commander of the army of the people of Hazor, to come out and meet you there in that area. Now, the reason they, God's asking them to position themselves on Mount Tabor they had, remember, 900 chariots of iron. Mount Tabor was pretty high in elevation, about 1,300 feet above uh, the, the Valley of Jezreel there. So basically, this is a wise position. If you're going to defeat chariots, this would be the way to do it. Because if you're up uh, you know, over 1,000, 1,300 feet in elevation above them, chariots aren't going to be as successful if they're trying to come uphill. That's not going to work too well. So if you can put yourself at a higher elevation and descend upon them, it's going to put you at a great advantage. And as well, God was orchestrating this battle and it would happen there by the river Kishon, which we're going to see ultimately God uses that river to actually overflow its banks to cause the territory down below to get muddy and they're going to get bogged down in that swampy conditions. And then it tells us that as a result of that, it's going to be a perfect opportunity for Barak and the 10,000 troops to come down while they're all stuck in the mud to come down with the sword, though they're outnumbered, and to be able to win a great victory here. So he hears this call of God, prepare the troops, go deploy yourselves in this position, and God's promise, I will deliver them into your hand. So he hears this prophetic word from the Lord that Deborah gives to him, but look at verse 8, it says, And Barak said to her, If you will go with me, then I will go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. Now, you can come up with whatever reasons that you want to try and discern why Barak is not responding. Is it that he's a sissy pants? 
Maybe. (laughs) Uh, Is it that he is someone who has fears and reluctance in his life? Possibly. Uh, Is it because he's here just genuinely trying to say, Deborah, I know you're a godly woman and and, and I wouldn't dare to want to do this because it seems that God speaks to you. It seems that God's speaking through you and that you hear from the Lord. And so we're going to enter into this battle that God's orchestrating. It could be that he is asking for her presence to be there because he's kind of trying to say, just like remember how the people of God always wanted to have the Ark of Israel with them when they went into battle. It could be that part of this is he's saying, listen, I'm not entering into this battle unless I know the presence of the Lord is with us and that I have the word of the Lord and spiritual guidance there by my side. I don't want to do it in my own fleshly efforts. We can't be 100% certain, but the bottom line is the guy's putting conditions on obedience. And you're never supposed to do that, right? God says, go do this. I will deliver them into your hand. I've called you to do it and I will give you victory if you just obey. And his answer is, If you go with me, then I'll go. In other words, if your presence accompanies me, I'll obey the Lord. But he says very clearly, if you will not go with me, I will not go. Translation, if you don't come with me, I'm not obeying God. I'm not going to do this. Now, either way, obviously, there is a hesitation. There's fearfulness. There's reluctance. And it seems, I think, somewhat, perhaps a little bit of passivity that this man is not embracing his God-intended role. He's basically saying to Deborah, I'm afraid to go, but if you go with me, then I'll have the courage and I'll obey the Lord. But, but, but I'm not willing to do this unless you go with me. And I see here a little bit of, again, fearfulness and reluctance that you have a man who is putting conditions on obedience to God. And he basically is shrinking back from his God-intended role and calling. And we have to be careful of that. Certainly, this is always a very damaging and dangerous thing for especially those of us who are men to do, and not just men as well, but certainly in this situation, we should never be shrinking back from our God-intended roles. We should never be pulling back because of reluctance or fear or inadequacy or whatever other excuses we want to make that makes it become conditional whether or not, well, I'll do it if you'll, no, you'll do it because it's the right thing to do. And to obey God is the right thing to do. And yes, it takes courage, but we should follow the Lord's call and do the things that he asks us to do. And certainly as men who are intended to be leaders by design, we should be all the more willing to do such. So he puts this condition out. Verse 9, she then responds saying, okay, I'll surely go with you. So she had courage, whether he did or not. She said, I'll go. Nevertheless, and I think this is the key there that she says, nevertheless, there will be no glory for you in the journey for you are taking For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. Then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. So again, take notice. Who's saying that? That's a woman saying that. Deborah as a woman is saying to him, okay, I'll go with you. However, nevertheless, because of the way you're going about this, because you're not just embracing God's calling and and manning up and doing what God is calling and asking you to do as a leader here to lead the people militarily and to to be the one that God uses to bring victory and deliverance for his people. She says, I'll I'll make a concession. Okay, I'll, I'll go with you. It's not the end of the world. 
But she utters a prophecy then as a word of the Lord. And she says, nevertheless, understand because of the way that you're now handling this, you have just lost opportunity and you've just lost reward. And she says, because now God will sell Sisera into the hand of a woman. The idea is instead of a man. God's now going to give deliverance to the people through the hands of a woman rather than what he intended to do, which was to give it through this man himself. And she says, and you're going to lose honor. You're going to be dishonored as a man as God gives the glory and the honor of the victory to a woman who actually is willing to step up and let God use her in that way. So Deborah rose and went with Barak to Kadesh. And Barak called Zebulun, verse 10, and Naphtali to Kadesh and went up with 10,000 men under his command. And Deborah went up with him. And verse 11 says, Now Heber the Kenite of the children of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, had separated himself from the Kenites and pitched his tent near the terebinth trees at Zanim, which is beside Kadesh. And they reported to Sisera that Barak the son of Abinoam had gone up to Mount Tabor. So Sisera gathered together all his chariots, 900 chariots of iron, and all the people who were with him from Harishoth Haguim to the river Kishon. So here's what's being described here. At this point now, Barak, together with the accompaniment of Deborah, embraces God's instruction. He gathers together the 10,000 troops. He begins to go and position himself there at Mount Tabor where God asked him to, to wait for Sisera to be drawn out into battle. In the interim, we're told here that in verse 11, this man Heber, who was connected to the descendants of the Kenites, remember Moses' father-in-law, who were a people, the Midianites or the Kenites were people who had sort of become uh, joined together with the Israelites and dwelt with them. They received a portion of the land of Canaan as well. It tells us that this man Heber, for whatever reason, verse 11, he separated himself from dwelling among God's people. He separated, pulled away, and he began to pitch his tent in a different location. And verse 12 says, he then went and reported to Sisera, probably because he thought these people have way more power and there's no chance Israel is going to succeed anyway. So he's established this connection. We'll see later in the chapter the Bible describes that this man, Heber, actually had a direct connection with Jabin, the king of these people who had been oppressing them. So he basically, what he does here, he now starts aiding and assisting the enemy. He tips off Sisera and says, hey, just a heads up, there's this guy Barak and 10,000 troops and they went and positioned themselves at a certain location and he now's a snitch in a sense militarily and he tips off the enemy and basically you find him in many ways what he's doing is he's involved with the practices of their enemy now and this to me is rather a, an interesting illustration because here's a man who verse 11 says that he has separated himself from God's people and what does that result in? He separates himself from God's people and then he starts participating in the activities of the enemy. And this is so often the case that whenever God's people separate themselves from the people of God and they start isolating and they start pulling back from fellowship and disconnecting from the people of God that they're supposed to be dwelling among and dwelling with, so many times they just become more vulnerable, more susceptible and weakened and they end up participating in things they shouldn't be participating in and worse, they end up getting drawn in 
to doing the will of the enemy rather than doing the will of God. And this is exactly what happened in this man's life now. He's involved in things they shouldn't be. The Bible tells us in Proverbs chapter 18, he who isolates himself rages against all wise counsel and seeks his own harm. And that's exactly what's happening here. Separation from God's people has happened and now participation with the end things of the enemy are taking place. He tips off Sisera and now he knows that God's people are there ready for battle. Well, verse 14 tells us that Deborah again pipes up and here she comes with another prophetic word exercising this gift. She's an incredible encourager. This, this godly woman, certainly she uh, was used mightily of the Lord. She would stir people to obey God, to, to do what was right in the sight of the Lord, this great woman of faith and spirituality. So Deborah now, good thing she's there with Barak, she says to him, up. In other words, get up. Get up. Get up, she says, for this is the day in which the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. Has not the Lord gone out before you? So she speaks to him and she says, listen, get up and get going. This is the day. It's time to engage. It's time to fulfill what God is leading you to do. She says, the Lord has delivered Sisera into your hand. He gave you his promise. He's going to come through. He's going to fulfill what he said that he would do. But she's saying, you have to go out and follow the Lord's leading. She says, there has not the Lord gone out before you. Now, as I said, we'll see as this song of Deborah comes to pass in chapter 5, that, that it seems that two things were happening, that there was a supernatural activity of God's involvement, but there also was human participation that happened. And it seems that as he goes rushing down now, we'll see the people to, to attack and battle. God comes to pass with this, it seems, very violent storm that causes the area down below to become muddied up so that they're able to just go through with the sword and rout the people very easily because their chariots that would have given them a great advantage are now basically disarmed as they're stuck in the mud and not able to move. So verse 14 says, Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. So notice her exhortation prompts him to action. She speaks a word of prophecy which gives an exhortation or a, a, an encouragement to him and that is what prophecy is supposed to do. In fact, the Bible tells us the description of prophecy in 1 Corinthians 14. It says that he who speaks prophecy speaks edification, exhortation, and comfort. And this is one of the exercises of prophecy is it exhorts people into action. It challenges people to obey the Lord. It stirs people up to do what is right, to follow God, to obey the Lord. Where, where a person know, and, and this is the difference. Teaching explains to someone how to do something or what they should do. That's what the gift of teaching is. Teaching is explanation. It gives people understanding. Exhortation says you know what to do. Now get going. Act upon what you know. Follow through. Step forward. It stirs someone up. And this is a beautiful thing where the gift of prophecy happens. And I think a lot of times it happens in a very informal way. It's not always a thus saith the Lord or let me hear. A lot of times I think it's just, it is that, that encouraging word, maybe from a wife to her husband or that encouraging word of someone who is just challenging somebody else in the body of Christ saying, look, you know what the Lord's told you to do. You need to do the right thing, man. 
You need to act upon it. You need to step forward and, and follow what God's leading you to do and believe the Lord is going to come through for you. And a lot of times that's what it is. It's just, it's that little kick in the pants spiritually that we all need sometimes in our lives. And it has that effect. Barak, it says, gets up. He leads the people down the mountain with 10,000 following him. In verse 15, look what happens. God honored his promise. The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera lighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. But Barak pursued the chariots of the army as far as Harashath, Hagoim, and all the army of Sisera, it says, fell by the edge of the sword. Not a man was left. So it was a total victory as the Lord was routing their enemy for them, supernaturally giving them victory and success. Verse 17, watch what happens. However, Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, he had fled away on foot. Again, because these chariots were bogged down, they weren't working, and people were getting slain left and right. He gets out, and he makes a run for it as the commander or the general among them. He's now running scared, and he realizes he's defeated. So he's running for his life, fleeing on foot, and he flees now to the tent of a woman named J.L., the wife of, huh, isn't that interesting, Heber the Kenite, the little snitch. <laughs> so as Sisera's running away, perhaps he goes to the tent of J.L. Now, we're not 100% certain, but it's likely he goes there because he knows that J.L. and Heber seem to have an alliance with King Jabin. And hey, this is a safe place to hide. I'm a defeated, terrified general now. I need to find some sanctuary. So he goes to the wife of Heber the Kenite. Uh, however, we're going to see that she doesn't share her sentiments. Uh, there's the same sentiments as her husband towards what is wrong. She is going to take a stand for what is righteous and is going to put an end to the evil that was happening in her household. And here we see another woman who takes a strong stand for God, even though she has a compromising husband spiritually. Watch what this happens in the story. It's very interesting. He goes to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, for there was peace, as I said, between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the house of Heber the Kenite. And Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Hey, turn aside, my lord. Turn aside to me. Do not fear. Relax. And when he had turned aside with her into the tent, she covered him up with a blanket. The idea seems to keep him in hiding. And then he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink, for I am thirsty. And she opened a jug of milk. Now, that would be considered a delicacy in that day. It was basically warm, curdled milk, but that, that was a Bedouin delicacy. So she uh, is really just showing hospitality to him at this point, not giving in to any suspicious activity. She takes him into the tent. But now that she knows that he is in, on the run, and it says that he says to her, she covers him, verse 20, stand at the door of the tent. And if any man comes and inquires of you and says, is there any man here? You shall say, no, no one's here. So she knows something now. She realizes, obviously, God's people are having victory. And obviously, this compromised situation that's gone on for a long time, which I've never been in agreement with, it's something that's beginning to fail now. And she realizes if this general is saying, please cover me, give me something to drink, and if anybody comes asking for me, say I'm not here, she realizes this is a terrified, defeated man. 
So she realizes the situation, and I think this is kind of the final straw that she says, you know what, I'm about done with this. And I'm going to put an end to this once for all. This man is weakened and defeated. He's now in hiding. Look what happens, verse 21. Then J.L., Heber's wife, took a tent peg, that's about 12 to 18 inches long, and took a hammer in her hand and went softly into him and drove the tent peg into his temple. Does this make a good movie or what? And it went down into the ground, so straight through his brain from the temple and right into the ground. So you know the last thing that went through this guy's mind, right? <laughs> took a minute, took a minute. You got that, right? She made the point. Anyway, sorry. You got you to take advantage. They're going to come around once in a while. You got to utilize those jokes. So she drives a tent peg into his side of his head, and it says he was fast asleep and weary, and in one blow he dies on the spot so she executes him now understand in that culture and even really to the to this day in the bedouin culture which is what this is the women set up and put down the tents so this woman though she's a housewife uh, she would be very familiar with using this large mallet or hammer and tent pegs and very proficient in this so she realizes this is an opportunity to execute this man and to put an end to this evil oppression over God's people and she's tired of the compromise that her husband has been involved in and she says, you know what? If he will not put an end to it, then I will. And so she takes out a stake and a hammer and she goes in there and in one blow she says, that's it, I am putting an end to this evil and to this compromise and she eliminates it literally from her household. And I think in some ways this is a very beautiful thing because here's a woman that says, in essence, if my husband's not going to stand for God and do what's right, then I will. Then I will. And she puts an end to this whole situation by executing this man. And you see, God delivered Sisera into the hand of a woman. The prophecy was fulfilled. And then Barak pursued Sisera and Jael came to meet him. And she said to him, come. She calls now Barak into the tent. I will show you the man whom you seek. And remember who he really should have been the one to have killed. And when he went into her, there lay Sisera dead with the peg in his temple. So on that day, God subdued Jabin, king of Canaan, in the presence of the children of Israel. And the hand of the children of Israel grew stronger and stronger against Jabin, king of Canaan, until they had destroyed Jabin, king of Canaan. And it says, Then Deborah and Barak, after this victory, great, great victory in a work of God, sang on that day. So notice the response. God does a work. God brings victory. God does something marvelous and miraculous. And, and what's the response? Worship. Praising God. Singing. So this woman, Deborah, who not only was a prophetess and a judge in Israel, a governmental leader, it says as well, it seems here, that she was somewhat of a songwriter, a psalmist, if you would, of sorts. She was multi-gifted. So Deborah and Barak now together somehow compose or sing this song and uh, don't know what the melody was but there's some interesting things mentioned a lot of it's poetic sometimes it's hard to understand it says verse 2 when leaders lead in Israel when the people willingly offer themselves bless the Lord or your transition may say praise the Lord or hallelujah 
And the idea here, right out of the outset, is, is praise the Lord when leaders actually lead. Uh, the indication here is, is it is a wonderful thing and praise the Lord when those who are supposed to lead actually embrace their role and their responsibility to do it. And they provide leadership. You know, it is a sad thing when those who are intended to lead fail to embrace their responsibility and do such. It's a sad testimony, and I think that it's something we all need to be on guard of, and especially as men, we need to take this to ourselves. We are called by God to lead in our families. And, and praise the Lord when men actually lead. Those who are intended to lead actually lead in their homes and lead spiritually and lead uh, the role of, of providing guidance and strength and provide leadership in a family when men who are supposed to lead in the church actually lead and we all have a, an opportunity to lead in any capacity different ways in our lives to be people of influence to be good representatives of christ but that we would not shrink back from our roles and our responsibilities the idea here is praise the lord when those who are supposed to be leaders actually follow through and do it rather than neglect their role and forfeit their, their role and responsibility for whatever shallow excuses often become the reason for that. And notice also, praise the Lord when the people willingly offer themselves, when people willingly say, you know what, I'll get involved, I'll help. As some 10,000 soldiers came to help, some embraced the call when they went out to come and fight the battle. Others obviously did not. So he says as well, praise the Lord when people willingly say, I'll offer myself for God's work. I'll get involved in the things of God, the works of God. That's a wonderful thing. We praise the Lord when people actually say, I'll serve. I'll willingly give of my time and my efforts to let God's work go forward. Verse 3 says, Hear, O kings, give ear, O princes. I, even I, will sing to the Lord. I will sing praise to the Lord God of Israel. And then it seems the address goes directly to God. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth trembled and the heavens poured and the clouds also poured water. And the mountains gushed before the Lord, the Sinai before the Lord God of Israel. So speaking of the time when the presence of God came powerfully into the area of Sinai and the mighty power of God caused the mountains and, and that of nature to sort of uh, tremble before him because the mighty strength of God's presence. Verse 6, in the days of Shamgar, he was the one we saw at the very end of chapter 3, the son of Anath, in the days of Jael, so talking about the woman who just put the tent peg through the head of Sisera, the commander of the army of Hazor, in the days they're in presently, in those days, there's a description of what it was like when they were being oppressed. It says the highways were deserted. Travelers walked along the byways, that is, they found hidden paths because they were living in fear. Uh, they were concerned. Village life ceased in the days of Israel. So it was a time where people were, were not enjoying life the way God intended them to. 
when the, whenever the devil, whenever the enemy is oppressing God's people and they're not experiencing the life that God intends them to, these are the byproducts. There, there's a, a reduction of joy and productivity and, and, and everything good and, and wonderful that God intends for people, it ceases. And instead, people live in fear and insecurity and apprehension. And, and there's this disruption of the life that God intends to be happening. And it says, this was the case, verse 7, it says, until I, Deborah, arose arose, interesting term, a mother in Israel. Now, I think that's beautiful. As Deborah refers to herself having brought help during this time, she refers to herself taking the title of what? A mother. A mother. Now, she could have said until I, Deborah, a prophetess, arose in it. She was a prophetess. She could have said a judge, a great governmental leader, a, a woman in touch with God, or, you know, a, a woman who had a gift of leadership, government. I mean, she could have took so many, but she refers to herself as a mother in Israel. And that she brought help as a mother in Israel. Now, I want to say two things in connection. First of all, I think part of what she's alluding to is she's basically saying, again, as a woman who God used incredibly, God really used her in a very powerful and, and a very profound way. And she's basically saying, all I was was a mother. I wasn't some trained rabbi. I wasn't someone who had all these gifts. And I was just a mom. I was just a mom who loved God. I was just a mom who prayed and listened to the Lord. And when God put something on my heart, I wasn't afraid to say it. If people needed advice or counsel and they came to me, whether it was my children and their friends or whether it was somebody in society that was trying to figure out a matter or a situation, if they came to me, I just told them what I thought God would want them to do. I was just a mom. And the idea of her recognizing that, you know, we often think there needs to be all these qualifications for God to use us. And she says, I was just a mother and God used me. God can use anybody. The Bible says God uses the, the weak things of the world. So often we hesitate to let God use us because we think that we're not qualified. God uses a mother here in a very powerful and a profound way. And I also think that she's indicating as well her heart in this is that in her mind and in her heart, before she was anything else, she was a mother. I think this is what her heart was. Yes, she was a prophetess. Yes, she was a governmental leader. But I think what mattered to her most is she said, look, I don't consider that my highest calling. My highest calling is I'm a mother. Before I'm a prophetess, before I'm a governmental leader, I'm a mother. That's my highest calling. That's my greatest concern and my most important ministry is just to be a faithful mother in Israel, a godly mother that ministers in that way of a parental calling. Well, verse 8 says, During that time they chose new gods, and there was war in the gates, and not a shield or spear was seen among 40,000 in Israel. So because they turned to foreign gods and idols, they became vulnerable, they were disarmed and weakened militarily. But my heart is with the rulers of Israel who offered themselves willingly with the people, bless the Lord. Speak, verse 10, you who ride on white donkeys, who sit in judges' attire and who walk along the road. 
This begins to picture a time of now victory after the battle. White horses or horses rode, white horses or donkeys that would be ridden in, in victory triumphs and marches. Far from the noise of the archers among the watering places, there they shall recount, notice, the righteous acts of the Lord, the righteous acts for his villagers in Israel. Then the people of the Lord shall go down to the gate. So it pictures a complete reversal of what took place. They went from fear and insecurity and a lack of productivity and life as God intended in the villages to the exact opposite. Now the people are walking around freely. They're safe. They're secure. They're talking about the righteous acts of the Lord and speaking about the awesome works of God going down to the gates as they normally would. Verse 12, Awake, awake, Deborah. Awake, awake, sing a song, and arise, Barak, notice the challenge again to him, and lead your captives, O son of Abinoam. Then the survivors came down, the people against the nobles. The Lord came down for me against the mighty. From Ephraim were those whose roots were in Amalek, that speaks of the location where they were, not the people. After you, Benjamin, with your peoples... From Machir, which is another reference to Manasseh, what's being described there, rulers came down, and from Zebulun, those who bear the recruiter's staff, and the princes of Issachar were with Deborah, and Issachar, so was Barak, sent into the valley under his command. Now, what's being described here poetically is it's basically a description of those who embraced the, the, the call to come into battle the people of Issachar, the people of uh, Zebulun, the people of Naphtali, of Manasseh. There, there were certain tribes that answered the call when Barak called out for troops to come and engage in this battle. So they're now being praised. So you kind of sort of have the hall of fame. These are the ones who came and they offered themselves willingly and they got involved in God's work. And then we're going to kind of have the hall of shame that's going to be described. These are the people who shirked their responsibility and chose for selfish reasons to not come help, to not come get involved, and, and let others do what they should have been helping out doing as well. So uh, verse 15 and 16 now sort of begins the transition to the hall of shame to those who didn't get involved. It says, among the divisions of Reuben, there were great resolves of the heart, but why did you sit among the sheepfolds to hear the pipings, the music for the flocks? The divisions of Reuben have great searchings of heart. So one tribe that didn't get involved that's sort of reproved here is Reuben. And it says that the reason why Reuben didn't come is he spent a lot of time analyzing and thinking, but he never got engaged and acted. It says there were great resolves of the heart. Uh, there was great searchings of the heart. But all he did was sit around the sheepfolds and listen to music and he never responded and got involved. So Reuben, apparently, when the call went forth, he thought about it. He probably kind of thought, yeah, I probably should do that. And, 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 and he thought it through and he analyzed it. But the problem is, is he just kept analyzing, 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 and he never acted. He never went and did anything. He never went and got involved. And because of that, he didn't answer the call of God and he never got engaged in God's work or in God's purposes. And sometimes this can be a reason, sadly and somewhat shamefully, why people never get involved in the things of God. They overanalyze everything and they think about everything and, 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 and their heart is stirred, but their heart is never moved to action. And maybe they, they hear a message or they, they hear an opportunity and say, yeah, I should do that. Oh, those people are, 
Yeah, I should go get involved in that ministry. I should go serve the Lord. Or I should get involved in the works. And, and their heart is kind of stirred and they think it through. And Yeah, but then they sit on their duff and listen to music. <laughs> they never do anything. They never get involved and opportunity passes them by. And they never actually participate. They just think about things, but they don't do anything for the Lord. Verse 17, Gilead, it says, stayed beyond the Jordan. So he said, no, nah, I'm too far away. That's not convenient. That was his problem. I'm not crossing over. That's, it's not convenient to do what God wants me to do. So he didn't get involved because it wasn't convenient. Why did Dan remain on the ships? So Dan, remember, worked on the ships, uh, people of the water. So it seems that work kept him a little too occupied. He would get involved, but work was just too busy for him. And then Asher continued at the seashore. So he was a beach bum. He just said, hey, I'm hanging out at the seashore. I'm enjoying the ocean. I don't have time. He stayed by the inlets and kept fishing all day. Zebulun, verse 18, is a people who jeopardize their lives to the point of death and Naphtali also on the heights of the battlefield. So notice, here you have sort of the opposite. Zebulun and Naphtali, it says they actually risk their lives. They jeopardize their lives. It's the exact opposite here for contrast to those who selfishly were somewhat lazy and found excuses. These other tribes, it says they actually risked their lives. They jeopardize themselves to the point of death and were willing to sacrifice greatly and they're commended for that. Verse 19, the kings came and fought, the kings of came and fought in Tanakh by the waters of Megiddo and they took no spoils of silver. They fought from the heavens, the stars from their courses fought against Sisera. Now this is sort of poetic language here. This is what I've been referring to earlier. This is sort of the poetic Hebrew language describing how this battle actually probably was something that God orchestrated supernaturally to bring a victory. Verse 21, notice, the torrent of the Kishon swept them away. That ancient torrent, the torrent of Kishon, O oh my soul, march on in strength. Then the horse's hooves pounded the galloping, galloping of his steed. So it seems to be a reference to how God, and his, some historians say there is record of this, brought as the battle began to happen, it seems as... Perhaps they were getting ready to go down from Mount Tabor into the valley of Jezreel below as the chariots were there lined up against them. Or maybe once Barak finally started to act in obedience when she said, get up and go down, God brings this torrential rain which floods and, and sort of brings a, a, a flood stage of the, the river Kershon, the torrent of Kershon, which causes the area to get all muddy and to get like swampy in its conditions and all of a sudden all the chariots get stuck in the mud and it becomes a very easy thing now for the people to come down and here just this beautiful thing you have the work of God and the work of man happening cooperatively together to give this victory well verse 23 one more curse God throws forth for someone who didn't engage in his plans and his work curse Miraz said the angel of the Lord curse its inhabitants bitterly because they did not come to the help of the Lord, to the help of the Lord against the mighty. So here God puts a strong curse upon these people. And again, why? It's emphasized twice. That's Hebrew uh, poetry there to drive them a point because they did not come and help in the work of the Lord. Because they refrained and they shrunk back again for whatever the reason, because they did not get involved, God took great displeasure to that. 
Verse 24, let's finish this up, just a reference again to what happened that we've already read. Most blessed among women, she gets a great commendation now. Again, what was she? Just a wife, but yet God used her powerfully. Most blessed among women is Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite. Blessed is she among women in tents. He asked for water and she gave him milk. She brought out cream in a lordly bowl. She set him up. You know, women have a way of doing that great influence. Just have some cream. Here's some warm milk. Go to bed. <laughs> and then she stretched out her hand to the tent peg, her right hand to the workman's hammer, and she pounded Sisera and pierced his head. She split and struck through his temple. Boy, that's graphic. At her feet he sank and he fell and lay still. And at her feet he sank, he fell. Where he sank there, he fell dead. Now it transitions now to the mother of Sisera the commander who has just been executed what her sentiments would be expecting her great victorious son to have won the battle the mother of Sisera looked through the window and cried out through the lattice why is his chariot so long in coming where's he at she's saying why hasn't he come back from the battle why tarries the clatter of his chariots verse 29 and her wisest ladies answered her and said Yes, she answered herself, are they not finding and dividing the spoil? They're just busy collecting all their spoils from the victory and war to every man, a girl or two for Sisera, plunder of dyed garments, plunder of garments embroidered and dyed, two pieces of dyed embroidery for the neck of the looter. So take notice. The answer comes back, oh, they're just enjoying the spoils. That's what's taken them a little while longer. But I want you to notice in verse 30, this goes to show you why God eliminated this evil. This man and these people were extremely evil. Verse 30 says that part of their spoil, what they felt they was their right from their reward to every man a girl or two. The idea is that when they would conquer these territories, they would take the young daughters and these wives to themselves and rape them for their own sexual pleasure. They would take a woman or two for a sexual slave. Sounds a little bit like ISIS, doesn't it, somewhat? And, and because of this evil activity, this is why God said this needs to be done with. This needs to be eliminated. This is horrible what they're doing. It wasn't just economic spoil. They were taking human slaves and abusing women in what they were doing. Verse 31 says, Thus let all your enemies perish, O Lord, but let those who love him be like the sun when it comes out in full strength so the land had rest for 40 years. And you guys did great. Let's stand. Let's pray together. We